When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. We are enjoying the beautiful spring weather and the spring in our step that we have for having broken 300,000 downloads. It's a wonderful achievement and we are growing an impressive global footprint. So firstly, let me thank you all so much for all of your heavy duty listening that you're doing and that you continue to do. Don't forget to not only listen to our latest releases as they happily land in your podcast apps, but do please go back into our back catalogue and check out all of the fabulous stuff we've recorded in the two short years since we've begun. If you're interested in naval history, let me recommend our mini-series on great sea fights. If you're interested in famous vessels, let me recommend our mini-series on iconic ships. If you're interested in a global perception of maritime history, then listen to our episodes on maritime Africa, maritime Wales, maritime Australia, and know that we've got many more coming your way. Maritime China, Maritime Sweden, among many others. To celebrate our international outreach today, I thought I'd line up something special. So we are beaming our way across the world to New Zealand to find out about one of the most interesting historic vessels I've ever come across. The Edwin Fox, now living out her retirement at the wonderful port of Picton in the very north of the South Island of New Zealand. What a ship. Built in India to British specifications, the Edwin Fox is not only one of the world's oldest surviving merchant sailing ships, she's also the only surviving ship that transported convicts to Australia. She also carried settlers to both Australia and New Zealand. She carried troops in the Crimean War. She carried indentured servants to the Caribbean from China. To find out more, I spoke with Heather Fryer, a volunteer researcher for the Edwin Fox Maritime Museum. Now, Heather has one of the best accents I've ever heard. It's half Yorkshire, half New Zealand. She's lived in New Zealand for many years, but her vocal cords have some form of permanent jet lag. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoy talking with her. Here is a perfect example of the fuel that keeps our global maritime heritage alive. The deeply knowledgeable, the hardworking, but above all, the exemplar of a woman generous with her time and talents for the benefit of historical knowledge. Here is the fabulous Heather. 
Heather, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. Thank you, Sam. It's a pleasure. The more I find out about this ship, the more interested I am in her. She sounds absolutely fantastic. Tell us a bit about the Edwin Fox and how she began her life. Uh, well, she was built in the shipyards of Thomas Reeves. Um, he had a shipyard on the banks of the Hooley River in Calcutta, or mm. Calcutta as it's known now. Um, it was built uh, in 1853, took a remarkable nine months, which we think is a very short period of time. Um, it's built mainly of teak and sole, um, and I think they, re- they kind of estimated about a thousand teak trees to, to actually complete the ship. So that's quite an amazing wow. amount of trees. That's one of the reasons we can't restore it, because we can't get the trees anymore. Um, so mm-hmm. at launch, it was around 836 um, tonnes and 159-ish feet long. So not a big ship and not a pretty ship, just built for as a workhorse. Um, yeah, a classic example of a workhorse as well, right? Are those, yeah. um, those teak trees are interesting because um, being made of Indian hardwood makes her almost impervious to rot, which is probably one of the great advantages you have that she's still here. It is, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so she, she left the shipyard um, heading for London, uh, as soon as she got to London, very strangely, um, she was taken to the um, docks, dry docks, stripped down, and a lot of extra um, metal knees adding for strengthening and a few other modifications. And that was to achieve the A1 Lloyd standard that she needed for her trading. So ah. it's a bit strange, a brand new ship, and she goes straight into dry dock and get repaired. I wonder whether that was because they changed the rules during her construction or whether um, she was just built for one thing and then was required to do another. Mm, not sure. We, we're not aware. Not sure. Hmm. Well, we'll try and find that out. I think that's an interesting um, interesting crossover between shipbuilding and, and the classification okay. and the rules and regulations. Um, okay. So, yeah, in La- when she, so she, was, um, she was changed a little in London. Was she then good to go to start her, yeah, her career? Yeah, bas- basically. I mean, she started as a fully rigged ship and she did get changed later on in her life to a bark. But, uh, yes, she started life as a fully rigged ship. Um, named after Edwin Fox. It, um, it's only recently he's been discovered who he was. There's a remarkable. I've never heard of him. Who is <laughs> <No>. he? <laughs> uh, well, he's uh, Edwin Goodhue Fox. So he's a um, London businessman, uh, auctioneer, insurance broker. He was the, uh, on the board of many businesses and seemed to have worldwide interests. And we're not quite sure the connection between Reeves and, and Fox as to why the ship was named after him. So that needs a little bit more research as well. Mm, yeah, well, I should call out to any of our listeners. Um, if anyone's interested in doing some research, do please get in touch with either myself or Heather and we can put some work your way. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, all volunteers are welcome. Um, so I guess after that, the, the, the next kind of um, interesting point was as soon as she got to London, her builder, Reeves, he was there also shortly after, um, and he got persuaded to sell his interest in the ship to Sir George Hopkinson. Um, but Sir George never actually paid Reeves, and that's where the ship went into auction later on and joined part of Duncan Dunbar's fleet. Fascinating stuff. And do we know um, do we know much about her early career, what she got up to? Um, well, she had quite an interesting career. It nearly um, ended before it started, because on her maiden voyage, she actually um, was in Table Bay, South Africa, just getting rid of her cargo of rice and retaking water. Um, she got caught in a storm with many of the other ships and she collided 
with a frigate called the Devonshire, and she her rigging was very majorly damaged, and she had to go back to port for three weeks or two or three weeks for repairs. Um, but she served in the Crimean War. Um, mm. She was under the moniker of Transport 109 um, under the Crimean War. Um, she was one of the few ships to escape the, the Great Storm that struck the uh, Crimean War arena in 1854 um, and spent about 15 months just basically taking troops backward and forwards, bringing the invalids back and carrying stores around. That's interesting. So there must have been a um, a sudden demand for shipping to move troops and, as you say, to bring invalids around. And I suppose the I don't know much about the process of how that worked. The flag went up and were, were ships commandeered? Were they purchased? Were they rented? Mm. How, do you know how that worked? Well, I think it's a very um, canny Duncan Dunbar because he paid um, quite a, a lot of money over the odds for the ship. But he already had a commission with the British government to provide... Edwin Fox to that war arena. So he knew what he was doing. He was a pretty astute businessman there. That sounds very sensible. <laughs> so an interesting career there. Have you um, managed to find any accounts of uh, of people sailing on her during that period? Uh, we, we have. We found quite a number of the troops and the leaders of the troops. Um, we've also found uh, a couple of instances of Crimean War veterans who were court-martialed and brought back on the ship as well. And what we're doing is we're researching into each of those people to try and find out what happened to them and uh, where they went and, and what happened in their later careers. Yeah, um, fascinating stuff. And is a lot of that um, material in the National Archives in London? Is it spread all over the place? Um, it's A lot of it's um, uh, on our favourite sites, Ancestry, um, but also a lot of it's in the British newspapers. A surprising amount is in the British newspapers. Um, you have to just go trawling through them line by line to find out what's happening with the, with the ship. Yeah, well, that's great stuff. So those are two resources which are online and they're accessible to anyone all over the world, yes, which is yeah. brilliant. Yes, yeah. Um, so after that, um, obviously spent a lot of time um, shipping cargo backwards and forwards. And then I guess um, in 1857, her most um, inglorious part of her career occurred when she was um, rented to transport indentured workers. So they, they were better known as coolies um, from Hong Kong to Cuba um, to work in the um, sugar plantations there. So that was to fill the backlog of, obviously they were abolishing slavery at the time and the workers weren't, weren't forthcoming. So it's fair to say not all of the people who joined would have wanted to join. Uh, they were very poorly treated. And in fact, the, um, the Edwin Fox was one example um, put forward in the British Parliaments um, under a paper submitted by um, Earl Carnarvon, who um, was vehemently against the, the, that industry. Um, and he gave the example of the high mortality rate on the ships of, um, in the Edwin Fox's example, 309 people were taken, but 40 actually died on the way. And that kind of death rate was common amongst those kind of ships, which is absolutely appalling. Hmm. And that, those are Chinese uh, going to Cuba, were they? Yes, yes, Chinese, Chinese labourers, uh, labourers, and uh, as I say, two, two terrible aspects. A lot of them didn't want to go, and it was very difficult for them to get back because not many ship owners wanted to bring them back to China um, because there wasn't an awful lot of, um, I suppose, profit in it. Um, although the Edwin Fox did bring one lot. Um, of people back in 1871, I think, through to India, of all places. So, yes, not not a very proud part of her, her history. No, no. But I understand she was also involved in 
taking convicts to Australia? Yes, so we, um, we had one voyage from uh, London to Fremantle, where she took um, approximately 280 convicts. Um, the pensioner guards and their families went. So it's one of the only voyages we've found where there was no deaths on, on the voyage, which is quite uh, remarkable. And there were some pretty, pretty interesting characters in there. There was two of the members of the um, first great train robbery, which occurred. So I'm not sure, it's probably well before your time, but in the 18, uh, 1970s, um, there's a film made about that with um, Sean Connery and Donald Sutherland. So I think in today's money, it's about $1.4 million worth of gold that they managed to, to steal and run away with. So they were part of that gang. And they were they were caught and then sent to Fremantle. Yes, sent to Fremantle um, for a long period of time. One of them rehabilitated, but the other one was just um, he was a bit of a lost cause, to be honest. So uh... <laughs> that's interesting. I was recently at the um, the shipwrecks museum of Western Australia in Fremantle, which was built by convicts. So I wonder if they had a hand in that in the construction of that building. They may well have done. They may well have done. Who knows? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Um, um, and um, are, the re- are the records good for researching into convicts and convict ships? Um, they are, they're very good and we're hooked into a couple of organisations in uh, Western Australia so there's a, a group who are looking at convicts across all of the ships and then there's a, um, another group who um, do a lot of research on the pensioner guards so we're kind of exchanging information as to uh, who was on the ship and what they did and what, what, what happened to them in later, later life so it's probably quite remarkable that the Edwin Fox survives as a as a convict ship, as a as a documented convict ship. Are there any others? No. So this is the only wooden convict ship um, that remains. Um, it's it's kind of uh, one of a lot of instances. We think it's the only wooden ship from the Crimean War that um, served as a transport ship, and we also believe it's the only wooden um, ship left from Duncan Dunbar's fleet, and the only wooden immigration ship left which is where she headed for later in her life in the um, 1873 period hmm, that's interesting so just go back to the um uh, indentured workers and the was the indentured workers voyage before the the trip to australia yes it was i've got those a little bit out of sync so the, the convict voyage was 1856 and, and then it was followed by the um by the coolies going in 1857 Mm, interesting, but then then um, then starts uh, having a career where people uh, uh, are travelling on board who've actually elected to do so, which is a significant <laughs> difference <laughs> to the previous yes. voyages. Yes, yes. So she she um, played a stint in the Indian conflicts. So again, she was transporting British troops backwards and forwards. So that's the sorry the in, that's the Indian mutiny in yes. the eighteen fifty sorry eighteen sixty five. So it's a little bit beyond the in, Indian mutiny. It's just when the British colonialism was trying to um, uh, trying to force their power onto onto the uh, Indian people. So it's, I don't think it's actually a recognised um, conflict period. Although perhaps some of your your listeners and readers can help with that as as well. Um, but as well as the um, soldiers, she, she also carried a huge amount of alcohol as well. And she earned a nickname at one point of the booze barge because she carried so much alcohol, pale ale, and whiskey and rums backward and forward um, between uh, the continents. From the UK to India? Yes, and vice versa, yeah. And in fact, on one of the trips, um, when she was heading for Sri Lanka, um, the captain ran her aground and they had to jettison a vast amount of alcohol to refloat the ship. So uh, no doubt he wasn't very popular at all. 
That's interesting. The the amount of alcohol um, being taken to India was that for? Do we know if that was for consumption by um, a, a British people who were living and working there, or whether they were selling it to the to the um, to the locals as no, well? No, I, I would say it was uh, the vast majority was for the British uh, people living, working, and uh, in the armed forces. Uh, Amazing. Yes. Amazing. And do we know if the alcohol, did it come from Lon- the southeast? Did it come from London or different uh, ports in the UK? I think um, I think it all came from the southeast, from the London area. But again, I can't be 100% um, on no. that. I know that the London mm. docks was a huge area for um, alcohol warehouses. So it's probably all stored there. A, a, f- a faint kind of fragment in my mind is telling me that the uh, the history of India Pale Ale has something to do with alcohol in India in this period, IPA. Um, but do you know anything about that? I know nothing about it. <laughs> uh, other than the fact uh, the ship was used for transporting it backwards and forwards, uh, mm. n- no, not as a huge beer drinker. I, I can't help you on that. Well, I, I tell you what, I bet some of our listeners are. So I'm please, sure guys, guys and girls, please, please get in touch and tell me what I yes. think I'm supposed to know about India Pale Ale yes. being transported to India, or clearly aboard the Edwin Fox. Fascinating stuff. Yes. Um, and then, if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, a, a, a really extraordinary period. Um, settlers yes. um, uh, getting on board and then travelling to Australia and New Zealand. Tell us yes. about this period. Yes, so she made uh, four voyages um, under the Vogel's immigration scheme. Uh, bringing immigrants from England um, through to the various ports in New Zealand. Um, she did a voyage in 1873, um, 75, 78 and 80. 
and we think approximately 800 uh, migrants were on board, although it is a little bit tricky because the um, passenger list didn't um, generally capture everybody. They just um, quite often just had heads of family. And we're finding a lot of people that would have travelled but were never registered in, as um, travelling on board, which is quite strange when you start looking at the families. Um, the 1873 voyage was probably her most um, dangerous passage. She got again got caught in a storm. She was almost demastered, um, rescued by a steamer called the Com, Com Perkius, something like that, a Captain Hudson, who was lauded at the time for being a, for a hero for basically getting a rope onto the ship and dragging her into the port of Brest where she was repaired. Um, she spent about three weeks there being repaired. Um, quite a number of the passengers, about 23 passengers, refused to get back on board. Um, they had to replace the um, surgeon on board because unfortunately he'd been killed during the storm, as had a um, able seaman, lots of injuries, you know, broken legs, chopped off fingers, all sorts, sorts of things oh. between the crew and the passengers. And they, they, They're uh, remarkably common on, on ships, people probably, losing their fingers. And if you've probably, ever been on a ship, it's, I it, can it, understand it becomes, why. <laughs> you understand why. It's yes. those hatches and, yes. the, and anything else that and, traps and you've got, how awful. Yes, the fast yeah, yeah. Yes. So that they, the kind of uh, interesting footnote to that is the replacement surgeon they sent over... Um, after being carried across from his hotel to the passengers by the, um, the uh, agents on two occasions due to alcohol, it was deemed he wasn't suitable to, to join the ship as a replacement. And they ended up sending him back to London and found a third surgeon. So they did finally wow. get somebody. So, uh, yes, they, um, they had quite a, an, interesting, an interesting voyage at that. But they all, all kind of made it. And we... Throughout the voyages, we have a number of obviously deaths because of the conditions on board, but a remarkable number of births and also quite a number of Edwin Foxes and Edwina Foxes named after the fact they were born on the ship as well that we're finding. So uh, That's wonderful. You... I think um, the, the, the um, giving birth on ships is interesting because uh, there's a time issue, isn't there? I, I, people know, they tend to know they're pregnant and they tend to not go on board ship for nine months, which means they definitely know that they're going to give birth on, on the, the vessel and yes. they've, they've chosen to do it. I think that's absolutely fascinating. I should like some more research into that. Um, in terms of the people going out to New Zealand, you're calling us from New Zealand now. Um, yes. Where did the settlers arrive? What was the kind of what was the traditional route to get into New Zealand? Um, so there's two for the Edwin Fox. There's two ports of entry. There was um, Dunedin, which is in the bottom bottom of the South Island, and their port there is, is Littleton. Um, and then a number of the settlers uh, would take smaller steamers and travel up the South Island and settle into uh, the Nelson uh, Marlborough area, which is where the museum is. And then the other area the ship would go to is Wellington, which is the capital city on the North Island. And um, they would start their lives there and, and again work their way up the country. Hmm. And, and which port were they leaving from in the UK? Um, just from the London um, ports down there and, th and then through the Downs and then across. Do we know how long the voyage took? Um, it took between uh, three and four months, except for the first voyage when the, they had the storm. So yes, between three and four months was the, was the average, depending on weather conditions and uh, and what, where they stopped off en route to, to stock up. 
So the people giving birth are a minimum of five months pregnant when they get on board. Yeah, you thought you'd notice that, wouldn't you, to be honest? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what, what were the, um, it's interesting, isn't it? What were the conditions like on board, do we know? Um, in the later ships, so, so the Edwin Fox kind of area, they, they were um, relatively good compared to the earlier ships, but we have a, um, an exhibit in our museum which uh, replicates the steerage um, apartments, as you want to call them, um, bunks, and they're basically a lot shorter than you or I would be these days and probably maybe a metre and a half wide, and they were for up to three people in each tier, and there was two tiers for them. So six people in a tier of, of, of bunks, you know, one bucket of water kind of um, a week to, to bathe in, and the food was also pretty appalling as well. So it just shows the conditions they left, they were willing to leave, to spend months on board, you know, with all the conditions, the uncertainty of getting there and the pregnancies um, and what they were looking forward to when they got to uh, New Zealand eventually. Mm, fascinating stuff. It makes me um, really think that it was quite um, accepted behaviour. It was quite run of the mill that you you would you would be prepared to give birth on a on a on a on a cold windswept wooden sailing ship halfway around the world um which you know it also says a lot about society and their kind of preparation and understanding mm. for for coping with life at sea which i think yes. we've lost now i mean yes. no, no one would go on a cruise now to give birth would they not knowingly no no but i mean they, they all they always had a surgeon on board and the passengers the female passengers uh, a couple of those were picked to be a matron and nurse so they did have um, as much care as they could be provided, but yes, it's a hard choice to Actually, make. Actually, I wonder if that's an in, that's um, this is all kind of come out of the blue. I've been inspired by this, but maybe that's the reason they went on board the ship, or one well, of the reasons because they they knew there'd be a surgeon, they knew there'd be nursemaids, there would be help. Yes, could well be. Um, hmm. Yeah, conditions were probably better than in their hometowns. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, and then, so what about the later bits of her career? What does she get up to? Um, so around the uh, 82 period, um, she was back in London. So she did a few more um, voyages carrying cargo around. But then basically she was obsolete. And she was laid up in London for two, two and a half, three years, um, not with anything um, to do, basically. Uh, and then she was saved by the need uh, in New Zealand for uh, freezer hulks for the burgeoning um, freezer, cheap freezing industry and cheap export industry. So she was commissioned um, for that in 1885. Uh, That's interesting as well, because that could only happen after people had invented freezers, which happened Absolutely. about the same period. And <laughs> there was, um, I forget, I forget the name of the first there was a oh, the first refrigerated cargo that went from New Zealand back to the UK and kind of changed everything in shipping. Um, mm. But she obviously uh, it obviously then advanced and and then had uh, frozen frozen meat again yes, something I yes. don't know anything about. <laughs> <laughs> Other than it tastes nice. Um, yeah. yeah. So she she uh, in eighteen eighty five again ended up in dry dock. Um, they. Um, chopped out quite a few of the deck um, plants. They put in metal plates, they put in the um, Bell Coleman refrigeration equipment, uh, 500 tonnes worth of coal, and basically she sailed across to Littleton. And that was her last um, voyage under, under her own sail. Um, and then she spent the next few years 
when she got to Littleton, being towed around various ports where the freezer um, industry was, was active. And she could hold up to about 14,000 um, carcasses at one point, which is quite, you know, quite an amount for a, a ship of that size. Um, and then in uh, 1897, I think it was, um, she was towed up to Picton, uh, which was her last open sea voyage. Um, by this time, her masts had gone, you know, she had a, quite an ugly looking uh, wheelhouse on top with all the equipment in. And she ended up at the Picton uh, Freezing Works, where she was there until uh, about 1900, uh, which was when she then got too small for that. And they built an onshore freezer works. And basically at that point, um, they decommissioned her as a freezing unit. Because a huge hole in the side of the ship and she was used for the next 50 years as a coal hulk. And then um, didn't, didn't rot, didn't fall apart? This is, the, uh, this is the miracle moment. This is when the ships like her disappear, but she managed to not die. She managed to not die. She got um, worse and worse, obviously. They, they did start off with using her as accommodation for the freezer works. But by 1903, she was um, condemned for accommodation. And uh, basically, uh, 1905-ish, she was um, just abandoned. Um, sorry, 1955, abandoned by the, the freezing works and, and just left there to, to rot. Yeah, but has somehow been saved. So um, t tell us, what, what, who decided to save her? How did that work? Uh, well, that, this was uh, one of the minor miracles of, um, in 1964, a group of people, um, the New Zealand Heritage Trust, decided that they wanted to save her. Um, at this point, she was still just a derelict at the side of the freezing works, and they argued for a number of years with the council to try and tow her away from there and put her somewhere safe. Um, it took until uh, 67, 1967 before that was agreed. Uh, there's a lot of discussions about, yes, you can, no, you can't. There's discussions about taking the ship out and the Royal Navy uh, using it as um, target practice to sink it. Uh, thankfully, they didn't. They're always um, up to that, the Navy. You have to keep they're an always eye on up them. to that. <laughs> in that, in that yeah, period, they were trying to period. smashing up maritime heritage left, right and centre. Anything they could do. <laughs> So um, in, in 1967, the ship was actually moved to a local bay called um, Shakespeare Bay, um, which was very shallow water. And they, t they tied the ship to the trees by the, by the beach foreshore. And uh, the planning for that wasn't particularly well thought out because as soon as the tide went out, the ship fell on its side, pulled out the trees and just laid there for the next 20 years, basically with the tides coming in and out and causing all sorts of havoc with the, with the ship. Mm. Yeah, but she's going into an interesting stage now. What, what's what's the current situation? Well, she's she's in dry dock. She's nice and safe and sound now in dry dock. Um, we are uh, we have a wonderful museum with lots of artifacts for the ship, and we're now moving into a uh, the next phase of her life. So she's 170 years old now, and in the area around where the ship is dry docked. It's going uh, undergoing huge renovations for new ferries that are arriving in a couple of years. So there's a really close um, partnership between the museum and the uh, project team are doing that work to make sure she's not damaged during that process because she's now a Heritage One category, sorry, Category One Heritage listed ship, and and they're making every effort they can to make sure she's not in uh, damage. So 
the, the monitoring dust. They've got the uh, vibration monitors. Because they're going to be doing some pile driving for new docks and they're going to um, shrink wrap the whole um, dry dock area to protect her from wow. dust to make sure she wow. doesn't get damaged in that way. Oh, I'd like, so I'd like to see that. It sounds like an excuse for me to come to New Zealand. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, Heather, it's, um, it's definitely one of the most interesting ship histories I've come across for years. I think it's brilliant and um, I wish you all the best with your project. Uh, please tell our listeners how they could find out more about the ship. Do you have a website or social media or something? Uh, we have an Edwin Fox uh, museum site and we have a, lots of our artefacts and histories online part of the New Zealand Museums site. And we have just become a content partner with Digital New Zealand, which is a um, New Zealand government initiative, which has about 200 content partners, 34 million or so records and counting. And we're building stories on the, uh, and pulling information from our collection and from everyone else's collection around the world as well. So those are three really good places to find more information. And everyone is always welcome to come through and look in the museum itself. Yes, well, I don't know. I want to come and see when it's all shrink wrapped. That sounds cool. That really, really appeals to me. That kind of mad, mad engineering project to save maritime heritage. Listen, um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. What a wonderful project, and I wish you all the best. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope I can hear you all now busily booking your flights and ferries to New Zealand to support the brilliant Edwin Fox. No doubt you'll be needing entertainment on your long journeys to New Zealand, so let me encourage you to go to our YouTube channel. Yes, that must be your first stop to see a whole library of amazing videos presenting the maritime historical world in an entirely new way. We've recently posted a couple of brilliant animated maps illuminating the maritime history of Australia, but there's much, much more. Who could ever forget our use of artificial intelligence and digital artistry to bring ships' figureheads to life? Please remember that this podcast is brought to you from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. Be sure to check out the Lloyd's Register Foundation's latest project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature, filming the world's best ship models with the latest camera technology. To find it, just Google Maritime Innovation in Miniature. That's Maritime Innovation in Miniature. And the Society for Nautical Research, you can find them at snr.org.uk, where you can join up. It's a great way of not only meeting people who share your interest in maritime history, but also of learning about the maritime past from the very best in the business. That's all for now. Keep listening, but above all, keep spreading the word. Tell everyone you know about the Mariner's Mirror podcasts. Tell them at the Yacht Club. Tell them at the library. Tell them at the museum. Tell them at the supermarket. Anything you can do will help us on our mission to spread the gospel of maritime history around the world. See you soon.